And I didn't know it until I got in this role. When you look at our forests, Eastern and Western Washington, we all have a misunderstanding of what a healthy forest looks like, right? And we certainly have a misunderstanding of what a healthy forest looks like in the context of climate change and a rapidly changing climate. Um, and I think enormous amount of education needs to go into what, what really does a healthy forest look like and what are the things that need to happen to make it healthy? Because standing back and thinking that it will get there on its own is not the case. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and we have a pretty good episode for you today. Probably one of our more celebrity guests, I would argue. I mean, all of you are celebrities in my mind, but this person is probably in the public eye a bit more than most of the guests that I've had on. Uh, Hillary Franz is our guest today, and she is the Commissioner of Public Lands in Washington State, which means that she's responsible for the state's wildland firefighting force, as well as uh, the management of over 6 million acres of public land in Washington State. So that is a big responsibility, and there is a lot of overlap with, uh, with fire and with fire resilience in the job that she's doing. And she's also done a fantastic job of kind of bringing the DNR, the Washington State DNR, into kind of a new era of building fire resilience and of focusing on fire resilience in addition to kind of the necessary suppression resources and suppression strategies that they have always traditionally been responsible for. She's done a significant amount of work uh, policy-wise, legislation-wise, in getting more funding for these kinds of initiatives and for building you know, funding forest restoration and building community resilience. And there's just a lot of cool initiatives that are coming out of the Washington State DNR. And I kind of look to it. Uh, I look to this agency as a as a pretty solid example of what these state agencies can be doing to increase visibility of uh, of resilience strategies and of uh, fuel reduction strategies. And then, of course, beyond that, I'm guessing that most of you have probably seen the Washington State DNR's social media pages. They do such a fantastic job. I would argue probably the best job out of most of the state and federal agencies in talking about fire, talking about climate change, talking about disaster preparedness in a way that is very accessible and almost funny in some cases, actually very funny in most cases, I should say. And I just think the presence that they have on social media is going to be really helpful and really educational as we kind of get more folks up to speed on um, what our forests need to, to be more resilient and how this forest restoration is going to look and, you know, keeping them updated on the initiatives that uh, that Hillary has planned or that the DNR has planned more generally. It's also fantastic that it's increasing visibility of the prescribed fire initiatives that they have going on and uh, really just kind of broadening the sort of public consciousness of this topic for the greater Washington State area. Um, so I think that's going to be really important. We talked a lot about that. We talked about kind of east side fires versus west side fires and, you know, the needs of these west side fires and how they're not maybe burning in the same ways or really fundamentally even the same as the fires that we're used to in Washington State. Um, we spoke a little bit about the Bolt Creek fire, which I was a PIO on last fall and which was a really sort of eye-opening fire, I think, for a lot of folks, much like the Labor Day fires of 2020 were, but uh, really eye-opening in terms of what kind of fire behavior you can get in on the west side when you have these certain factors that are all kind of aligned. So in the case of the Bolt Creek fire, we talked about this in the episode, but in the case of the Bolt Creek, it was this 
really big wind event. It was, you know, months of drought and it was an ignition. And when you get those three factors combined, um, like we did last, I believe it was early September, um, then you have the potential for these big, really fast spreading wildfires on the west side where you wouldn't normally kind of uh, expect to see fire behavior like that. So we talked about the future of fire kind of on this side of the mountains. Um, I say that because I live in Bellingham, Washington, just north of Seattle, about an hour and a half north of Seattle. And we were just kind of covered in smoke for most of the fall last year, all the way through the end of October, which is pretty wild and unseasonable and definitely ticked a lot of people off. But as we talk about in this episode, it was also a great opportunity to kind of get folks thinking about this stuff more and making it very clear that this is not a problem that's only affecting the east side or california or oregon like it's very much here in western washington and it was really cool to be able to chat with hillary about that and about her planned initiatives to broaden that public understanding of fire on the west side and to help some of the communities over here build resilience to wildfire all right let's get this show on the road here is hillary franz for life with fire podcast thank you for listening and i hope you enjoy this episode Most of my childhood actually was spent within a fire hall. So my uh, father uh, raised my sister and I on his own, a single father, and he worked for the city of Portland Fire Department. And so literally after school uh, and on weekends, I would find myself in that fire hall spending a lot of time first doing my homework. And then my job was to make sure the budget was balanced because that's my dad was a fiscal analyst. So I was like, he gave me the budget. He's like, check my math, which was uh, long and cumbersome. And then I got to sort of walk the halls and really see, you know, fires sort of within the hall, how firefighters uh, spend their day and their nights. Um, yeah, grew up and that was my first experience. And most of my childhood was, you know, really seeing um, the hard work uh, that our firefighters do and how at a moment's notice, they're jumping into action to save people's lives. But it's interesting because I came in to this role. Um, and as you know, it's an elected position and wildfire and managing um, the wildfire for the state is one of the most significant responsibilities of this job. Um, and now also probably one of the most time consuming um, all year round. And the one that keeps me up at night uh, uh, almost most of the year. Um, and at the same time, when you're running for this position, most of the public isn't asking what's your experience in wildfire? What's your experience in fighting fires? What's your experience working with firefighters? Um, my hope is as the years to come that more and more public are having those really serious conversations about what kind of expertise they need within this role of leadership, but also within our state in the investments at the local state and federal level. So we can address these catastrophic fires that we see. Mm-hmm. I am interested in knowing, you know, first off, one of the first things, uh, one of the first things you did as commissioner, I think, in the wildfire space was the Wildland Fire Protection St Strategic Plan in 2018. Um, curious about that process, you know, like, who were you consulting on that? And like, what made it feel like a sort of priority for you first, uh, when you were kind of first in that position? So when I first came in this position in January 2017, I mean, we were on the heels of the horrific catastrophic fires of 2014, 2015, 2016, you know, 2015, a million acres burned. 2015, we tragically lost three firefighters lives. And it was very clear that this problem wasn't 
an anomaly. This was not, those three years were not something that was just an anomaly, but it was the trajectory our state was on to see more significant catastrophic fires year after year. Um, and that we couldn't waste any more time. We had to get to work um, and really be able to step up and deliver the kind of resources we needed to be on top of these fires. Um, I think the first thing that surprised me was actually how little funding we got in the budget every single year for wildfire, which is zero, even at zero, even in the context of these catastrophic wildfires and even the wildfires we saw in 2012 and the fires before that year after year, zero was placed in the budget, largely because fire funding was spent, you know, just send us the bill after the fact. But when you are sending the bill after the fact, you're already in emergency response versus being in a thoughtful response of what are the resources and tools we need to have on the ground and in the air at the local and the state level to get on these fires quickly and to contain them and to help protect lives. The more you have those resources up front, the more you have them pre-positioned and ready to go, the more you'll be able to reduce the damage and you'll be able to save people's lives and protect them. So I think that was the first, and, and when I looked around at the fleet, like our air resources, we had eight Vietnam War helicopters. And I was like, wow, we really have not invested in wildfire response, right? I would go, I spent time knowing that I did not have a lot of background in wildfire. I spent an enormous amount of time just in that 2017 going to fire district after fire district, talking with firefighters who were, and fire chiefs about what um, what needed to happen to change the way we fought fires, what needed to happen in how we worked more um, effectively and collaboratively with our local fire districts as one team. Um, I also spent time with Daniel Lyons, who um, people may remember um, was in that twist fire where three of his you know, fellow firefighters um, tragically lost their lives and, and asked him what what had gone wrong, what needed to happen. I spent an enormous amount of time reading report after report of what was broken in the system. Um, and all of that listening and learning um, helped me be able to really set up a strategy for us to develop that plan. As I say, you know, the first thing you have to do uh, is listen, then you have to learn, and then you can lead. And we really, that's the approach I took with this um, and going to everyone. Um, I remember when we started to develop the DNR Wildland Fire Protection Strategic Plan, and the whole thinking around that was, if we just every year keep coming to legislature asking for a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little, but without so really a clear, well-developed understanding of what is, how significant the problem is in wildland fire, how much larger it's likely to get, and what are the needs at the local and the state level, then we're going to, we're going to get a lot of money, but we're not going to have a well thought out plan of execution. And we may miss the mark significantly, um, and so that my belief is when you have a plan that is developed by a very robust group of experts at all levels who see it from a very different angles um, and they can come together around that plan of what needs to happen to change the trajectory we're on, um, then you, you really can make a difference. You can know that those investments are going to work and you can make a commitment to the public that things are not going to be the way they have been. They will change and they will get better. That wildland fire strategic plan I, I, uh, was built on the input of nearly a thousand Washingtonians. <laughs> I mean, at, from 
unbelievable amount of expertise and experience in wildfire. Some have worked at federal level, state level, local level, all of the above. Some have been in uh, an incident management leadership role. Some have been right on the ground putting on those out those fires and then community members and local government officials. Um, uh, Washington State Fire Marshal, U.S. Forest Service. I mean, it was like the breadth of it. And I remember those meetings, too, because I went and attended quite a number of them. And I remember in the beginning, they said, oh, this is just going to be like all the other efforts <laughs> where people get together. They tell what needs to happen. No, some things are picked up, but not a robust suite of um, the challenges and the opportunities and the needs, um, and then putting together a comprehensive plan that reflects everything that was heard by a very robust, diverse group of people. And I committed that that would not be the case. And and I do remember the last meeting where people said, wow, this has been a very different effort than they'd ever seen in the area of wildland fire um, planning. Um, it lays out 40 strategies to accomplish four significant key goals. So it's, it's very, um, comprehensive, you know, it basically Washington, key goal, Washington's preparedness, response and recovery systems are going to be fully capable, integrated and sustainable, that we're not just going to focus on putting out the fires, we have to get at the root cause of the issue and make our landscapes more resilient in the face of wildfires. And it also, there's something that every community can do to be part of fighting these fires before they even start, which is by making their own properties, their neighborhoods, more resilient um, and more adapted to the current and the future wildfire regimes. Um, and then obviously safety, 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 making sure that we are putting our safety of our firefighters and our public as number one. Um, I'm a big believer in government that I think too often uh, we, one, we, we, we sort of uh, realize we're in the uh, crisis but we're, when we're already in the middle of the crisis, not when we're in the front of the crisis. The other thing I see in government too often is we uh, it's easy to ask for money um, to solve the problem, but too often there isn't a plan uh, that really assesses what the full breadth of the problem is, what the opportunities and solutions are, and then developing strategies and then committing to implementation of those strategies. And what I love about the wildfire strategic plan is that's exactly what we did. We made a full assessment of what is really the problem we have today and how that problem is going to grow. What are the challenges and opportunities at every level, local, state, and federal, Eastern and Western, rural and urban. And then what are the tools and resources we need? And then we went and asked for money. We didn't ask for money until we had a really well-developed plan. Um, and I, I think the last thing I would say is we had a real reputation uh, issue we needed to uh, own up to and be honest about. Um, I remember when I came into office, people said, DNR, Department of Natural Research stands for do not respond, do not resuscitate. Um, and it's because um, of how we had been fighting fires where we hadn't really been building it in a collaborative coordinated team with our local agencies and our federal agencies. Um, we also weren't being thoughtful about um, what is the number one thing we can do to actually get on these fires quickly and put them out um, and prove that we are going to be responsive. We are going to do everything possible to, to protect people and their properties and their lives. And, 
And so before we even asked for money and developed this plan, we did sort of some significant things, three significant things that didn't even require money. Um, and I think that helped boost people's confidence in our agency and the people of this agency who do really know how to fight fire and want to fight fire um, safely and want to do it as a team with our local and federal agencies. But the first thing we did was the moment there was smoke in the air, we put our air resources on them, right? We showed up and we got on them quickly and contained them and put them out. And we set a goal that 90% of our fires were going to kept below 10 acres. And we were going to do everything possible, even in bad years to achieve that. Second thing is we pre-positioned our equipment. Um, even though we had only, a, we only had so many resources and very little resources, we pre-positioned them. So we didn't spend four to six hours traveling to get to the fire, which you know, based on your fire experience, is the difference between quick containment and a very large fire getting even larger. Um, and then the third thing is we began training our local, state, and federal agency firefighters together rather than um, by ourselves. And that part of that came out of a conversation with Daniel Lyons, where he had said that there had been training had been really cut back at the federal level. And then speaking with um, local fire districts that said they had very limited resources to be able to afford the training. And I said, this state, we depend on our federal agencies and we depend on our local um, agencies for firefighters. We should bring all of us together under one comprehensive training program. And we should commit that no matter where they're coming from, local or federal or other state, um, we are going to be trained with the same level training. And what that did is created an unbelievable coordination, collaboration, and communication before the fires even started, which made all of us a better team on the ground um, once fires were there. Okay, I have a tough question for you. Uh -oh. um, is there <laughs> is there space, do you think, in the wildfire strategic plan for the idea that like maybe in the very early season when we have pretty wet fuels or when we have precipitation in the forecast, maybe even late in the season, that there might be space to um, allow fires to burn a little bit? Or is that something that you are kind of against? Um, I, I understand that this is impossible probably to answer from a pol political standpoint, <laughs> um, well. but from an ecological <laughs> standpoint, uh, I don't know if you can comment on that at all. Just something I'm curious about. Oh, no. So I'm not usually afraid of any, any question. Like, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with the public. Right. And everybody knows none of this is easy. Um, so I would say to you, I am a big believer in fire is one uh that our forests, our landscapes, um, if they're healthy, are fully capable of fighting fire on their own. They truly are. They did it before us humans were walking this planet, right? That our most healthiest forests and landscapes are ones that had a natural fire that came in, right? Um, and so the position I've taken is one that it's about fire at the right time and the right place, right? So when we have fires and it's you know, it's early, like today I'm in Olympia, it's gray and cloudy, it was raining on the way down, right? A fire starts at this point is not, you know, as we are in, you know, mid-March, is not going to usually blow up into a significant fire because we've had so much moisture in the months beforehand and we are looking at the, you know, sort of the weather coming in the next week or two will continue to have uh, moisture. So, um, so fire right now could be a very good thing, right? Um, and it would help bring sort of the fuel load down on that forest landscape. It would help it get to more of a healthy restorative state. That means when it is hot, 
and it is dry later this summer, fire will be less challenging for it. Um, so I have been uh, very clear that I want fire on the landscape. I want it when in the right time, in the right place where we have a reduced fuel load on that. That forest has are already been ideally treated. Um, so it means that we don't have the same intensity of fuel out there that will lead, that all it takes is a quick wind. And all of a sudden, what we thought was a managed 500 fi acre fire is now a 100,000 acre fire, which we have seen in California and Oregon, um, as, which has been very, very disastrous and destructive. Um, I also think that it's about timing, which means, you know, in the middle of July, right, or August, where we have had four weeks without rain, and we're predicting we're not gonna we're gonna have another three to four weeks without rain, and that landscape is dry, and is literally kindling, and it has a lot of fuel on it. Probably not the best time for us to be having fire in that landscape. And we've been pushing. I mean, I'll just say prescribed fire has been one of the things that I have pushed hard for in this agency. And I will tell you, I. My poor team, because I, I kept banging my head against the wall. I joke I have a den here and people think it might be my my son's, but no, it's prescribed fire dent is what I say. Cause I hadn't realized, you know, I didn't realize until I got in here into this role how many statutes have been built up that have prevented us from getting fire back on the landscape in the right time and place. Um, how a long period of having those statutes really preventing us doing prescribed fire means that we've lost the trained experts in the field. So we've now had to train more people. We've now had to start that whole program all over again, train people on how to do it. Um, and so we've not only changed statute, statutes that prevented us from doing prescribed fire, we then had to change policy, which had to go through three state and federal agencies review <laughs> took <laughs> I took a very long time. Um, and then on top of it, training a whole new group of people who are fire bosses and have that experience. But I think we're getting, it's going to take us a while there, but I think we're going to get the kind of results on the ground through that work that we've done that will help bring fire back at the right time in the right place. And especially as we are rapidly accelerating our forest health work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you guys have done absolutely a great job of that. Um, it's been really cool to see the amplification of prescribed fire at the state level when often at the, at least in the last two years at the federal, federal level, it's kind of been dropping off a little bit. I feel like kind of at the, at the greater public consciousness level. Um, so that's been great to see. Another thing I wanted to touch on was just the all hands, all lands, all hands yeah. concept yeah. and how that is, it seems to be a pretty big pinnacle of the work that you guys are doing and of your, of your strategic plans. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like kind of the policy pathways that have brought you into that, brought the state into a position where they can do more of the all hands, all lands concept? Um, yeah. And then I have yeah. a question about the statutes because you mentioned statutes and I want to know more about those. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So all lands, all hands. I mean, so a couple things in that place. I mean, I, we are looking at, I'm a big believer in the all lands, all hands in both, not only just the wildfire response, but also the landscape resilience, the forest resilience, right? So I'll do both of those. You know, um, I it was very clear to me that when I got in this role that we were not going to be as effective at fighting fires if we sort of looked at it, oh, this is our little piece of the pie. This is our area to fight fires and we're gonna go it alone and we're gonna just tackle our piece. 
um, and not think about it in a way that the entire state is our responsibility. It's our responsibility to be helping reduce these catastrophic fires and protect our firefighters and protect our communities and that fire doesn't follow any boundaries. And honestly, we should start to operate the same way. Um, we're going to make sure we're not drawing lines on a map and saying this is as far as we go. Good luck. It's the rest is yours. Um, as I, you know, it's one state, one team, right? Um, and that was the and the same. We've now applied that same approach to our forest health work because it's the same thing, right? If our federal lands are struggling with um, dying forest disease, insect infestation. It, it flows right into our state forest, which flows right into private forests and a tribal forest. Um, we have got to bring all the tools to bear and not just say, hey, I took care of all state lands. Good for me. Good luck, everyone else, because fires will continue to burn. We will still have communities at risk. We will still have landscapes at risk and we'll still have firefighters risk. And so that all lands, all hands approach, um, I think honestly is setting the state up for unbelievable success and truly tackling this wildfire crisis and the forest health crisis um, in a new way of collaboration and coordination and, and will mean we will get there faster because we're going together. Absolutely. That was fantastic. Um, I'm going to change pace a little bit. I wanted okay. to talk because I live in the West side. I live in, in Bellingham. Um, okay. And I responded to the Bolt Creek fire as a public information officer this last fall. And I'm just, I thought that was an exceptional example of West side fire, exceptional, not in a positive way. I mean, it was just, right. it was like a very interesting fire in that it started in, I guess, late August, early September when you would think we would start getting some rain and then we didn't get rain for an exceptionally long amount of time dumped a lot of smoke into the, into the main, you know, Seattle area. I'm just curious if you can speak to, you know, if that did, did that fire maybe inform the Senate bill and the house bill that you, um, I guess it was five, six, one, one and one, five, seven, eight. Did that inform those at all? Um, you know, how have you kind of taken any lessons from that fire and, and kind of run with them? Yeah. Well, let me start first by, I, uh, you know, uh, back in 2017, 2018, when I was working uh, and we were trying to secure funding, as you know, for House 1168, right, to uh, truly secure investments, finally get the kinds of investments we needed in wildfire response and forest restoration, community resilience, it took us three plus years, right? We built the plans. We said, here's the problem. Here's the solution. Now we need your help to invest in it for us to set our state up for success and reduce these fires and the damage. And one of the things that was most surprising is that um, a lot of the legislators from the West side said, this isn't our issue. And I was like, wait, what? They're like, this isn't our issue. This is an Eastern Washington issue. And I said, no, it's an entire Washington issue. Um, and what changed first started to change that framing was obviously the smoke, the smoke that we experienced a little in 2018, but more so in 2020, um, right, where we had the worst air quality from Spokane to Seattle. And all of a sudden it sort of brought home, well, even though we had uh, still not significant fires on the west side of the state, it brought home that um, fire is impacting everyone's life and not just those who are um, seeing fire right at their doorstep. Um, it was during, it was basically, we've known, honestly, we could see the growth in the number of West Side fires. Sure, they're not as large as the kinds of fires we've seen in Eastern Washington, but we've seen a rapid increase in the number of fires every single year on the West Side. 
Um, and we've seen them in geographies that I think uh, we all would be very surprised at, like the rainforest and the Olympic Peninsula. I mean, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and who would ever think we'd have fires in March on the coast. And I remember Wakayakum and Grays Harbor, right? Southwest Washington having fires in March and April. I Last year in November, the week before thanks, the week of Thanksgiving, we responded to four fires up on um, the Northwest Point in Macaw Tribe, I mean, which is just mind boggling, right? No, November. Um, so it was not a surprise that we would see a fire like Bolt Creek. Um, it's always a surprise when you see it in November because we're all we're all hoping the season will end in September and then October, but it wasn't a surprise. Um, I think, and especially when you look at the landscape of Western Washington, and especially I know where you are, where we have very thick, dense forests, much denser than what nature um, has allowed in the past because fire was allowed to move through them and um, really sort of restore the health of that forest so they're not all competing for water and sun. And then obviously we have a rapidly changing climate. We're seeing hotter temperatures year after year and longer periods of drought. Um, I think it is an important wake up call for Western Washington. Um, I think it's an important wake up call for us where I've said is we needed to first show our success um, in Eastern Washington, which is um, on our forest health work. Um, as you know, the forests there have been struggling much longer um, and they're far more hazardous um, and susceptible to fire. And it was, at, you know, we've now started to now move to doing the forest health plan for Western Washington. It's a lot more complicated, not only because more people live in the forest, but our forest ecology on the West side is very different from Eastern Washington. And there's a lot of need for real scientific underpinnings of that work. And there's going to be enormous amount of education of the public um, because they have a very different understanding of what West side forests are supposed to look like in the face of climate change and based on nature doing what nature should do. Um, I think, so that's first, we will be doing that forest health work. Um, we have made such inroads and in ground on Eastern Washington, where by the end of this year, we will be halfway to our achieving our 20 year forest health goal in less than, we will basically within five and a half years, we will have already achieved, you know, half of our forest health plan, which is pretty significant. It means we'll get done in half the time if we stay on pace and scale. Um, the cascading impacts of wildfire bill, uh, I would say is sort of, I almost want to call it 1168 at 2.0, right? So House Bill 1168, we first went big and said, we need these resources for wildfire response. We need it for forest restoration. We need it community resilience. Here are the prioritization of those. Um, and we're focusing on landscapes that are in the highest risk with the most significant fire. We're focusing communities with the most significant risk and the highest significant fire. Um, and uh, we knew though that that was not gonna be a one and done. We needed to obviously bring resources to the West side. So Cascading Impacts of Wildfire is now bringing the Wildfire Ready Neighbors program that I launched um, in six counties in Eastern Washington. Um, we'll now bring it to eight counties in Western Washington. If it passes. Um, county communities that are on the front lines of those fires, they might not have experienced them yet, but they are in dense, thick 
forests that um, uh, are at risk of fire. It also brings in elements of um, what I'd say community resilience at the next level that 1168 didn't have yet, which is one, that context of evacuation planning. We know that if we have over 2 million people living in that wildland urban interface, uh, very small roads going in, <laughs> very few roads going at, in and out. Um, and it makes it really hard for people um, and for our um, firefighters to get in. And so having that evacuation planning is just the next level of this community resilience work that we did in House Bill 1168. Uh, another key part of it, obviously, is the smoke. We know that smoke has been significant and it's in every corner of the state. Uh, communities in Eastern Washington face it, have faced it a lot longer and more per, um, pervasively than Western Washington, but we know it's not going away. Even if even if Washington State never had another wildfire, which is not the case, we are still going to experience it from BC, Oregon, California, we have. Um, the more we can help communities be preparing for that the, um, and taking steps to protect their health, um, the better we all will be. So there's a key component in that that I think is um, significant. And then I think the last thing um, that's important is oftentimes people think once the fire's out, everybody's safe to go home and it's all good, but the reality is we see year after year where post-fire is when our rain and storm events come and we have, you know, landscape that is burned very substantially that can no longer hold that moisture and that water that leads to these um, landslides and debris flows. And we have not had the resources to be able to build the kind of teams, those bear teams that need to come in and really do that assessment. And this is saying to the legislature, thank you for House Bill 1168. Those were the most critical, important investments that needed to be, ma be made. Now here is the next one for Wildfire 2.0 in protecting our communities. Do you have something like a bear team in the cascading impacts of wildfire? Is that- Yes. Was that part yeah, of the so bill? Yeah, so right now, I mean, really, we don't have uh, a developed program within the agency. We oversee, besides wildfire, we oversee Washington State Geology. So <laughs> uh, we, as I, we're a volatile state, and I don't just mean politically. We've got a lot of volatility under that ground. <laughs> you know, five live volcanoes, one in your backyard, I have to remind you of, you know, the threat of the big earthquakes, tsunamis, <laughs> landslides, and our our agency, the Washington State Geology Survey, which is in our agency, has been really building a really robust program around earthquake, seismic safety and retrofits for schools. It's also and and the data analysis, the tsunami work, um, all of that. But one of the areas that we have not had the resources for, which is that really bringing in those bear teams to really help assess a situation after the fire or what's the risk? Can people go back to their homes? Are they going to be safe? Especially given we have a very steep topography, like the Bolt Creek was a very steep topography with communities right up at the edge of it. So this will build that program. Um, so I'm super excited about it. Cool. Um, so you had mentioned uh, education earlier. Community education is going to be a huge element of probably any initiatives that take place on the West side. And I saw that need when I was on the Bolt Creek fire and people were like, what is going on? Like, why is there so much smoke day in and day out? Um, and explaining like strategies and tactics that need to happen on the West side in order to prevent some of those mudslides and things from happening in the yeah. future was really difficult. So I'm curious, you know, what are some principles that you're kind of, or what are some, some ways that you're kind of thinking about educating this side of the state or 
what are some um, potentially some strategies that you guys are thinking about? And also, you know, with the communication side of things, I have to bring up the DNR social media. It's spectacular. And they amazing. I know they're amazing. I love amazing. them. And there's just so much opportunity there. And I know you guys yeah. understand that there's so much opportunity for good education there in a fun way that involves a lot of memes. So if you could just yeah. kind of talk about that and maybe your communication strategy in terms of that wildfire education piece, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I mean, so, um, Part of, you know, when I came in this agency, part of, I mean, most people didn't even know what DNR was and what DNR did. And I've been really trying to help um, encourage our agency at every single level to be more outward facing, right? And do it in a way that isn't just responsive to people's needs, but also helping inform and educate them before the crisis even happens or the problem starts. And I, you know, hats off to my communications team. I told them, go big, be bold, be fun. I mean, life has too many, too many challenges and negativities and everything like let's and let's really bring joy to this work. Right. Um, and let's bring fun to it and let's try to reach people in a different way that makes them want to engage. Um, and that's across all of our programs. But I, I'd say in the fireside, I think there's a couple of key things. Um, one is we are very much wanting to focus on how do we prevent fires from starting in the first place, right? So there's a prevention education, right? And meaning that, you know, when we look at the number of fires we have each year, 80 to 85% are started by people, right? That means we are the problem. That also means we can be part of the solution to prevent it from happening in the first place. And I think we need to do, and we've been working on it, um, and we've got to do more of trying to educate people, especially as we get into more populated areas on the west side, of educating people that the landscape has changed a lot, the, the climate has changed a lot, that where you might have been able to be sort of risk-free with certain behaviors in the past or... Um, that that's not going to work anymore. So debris pile burns is a perfect example. We have so many debris pile burns because people are used to doing their spring cleaning in March and April and no way would a fire start because it's too wet. It's too cold. Right. But sure enough, all it takes is a hot, dry few days and some wind and that fire now is picked up and we have something that would never have been a problem become a problem. Another context around that preparation, or I'm sorry, the preparation, but the prevention is uh, we have more people on the landscape than ever before. And I don't mean just more people living in the wildland urban interface, that for sure has happened, but we also have, you know, COVID, more and more people are getting outside and they were getting outside and enjoying the beautiful natural landscape we have, which is wonderful. Um, but they didn't necessarily have all the tools and resources about how to be on that landscape and make sure they're keeping themselves safe and others safe and the landscape safe. So we have a whole significant amount of work in that. I think, you know, we launched with REI that Recreate Responsibly program back during COVID um, that went, had no idea. It was a state program that went national, right? Um, I think we need to bring sort of that same kind of education and awareness in the prevention of fire um, for those who are out enjoying themselves on the landscape. Um, the next piece is preparation um, and educating around what people can do in their own home um, and in their own neighborhood. Um, this is, you know, we launched, this was a sort of, the way this idea came up, it's our Wildfire Ready Neighbors program. 
Um, obviously, FireWise has been around forever, um, helping homeowners in, you know, throughout the entire country to be more um, pr uh, prepared and reduce fires impacting their homes or their neighborhoods. Um, I really felt like we had to bring a robust program to this that isn't just one off in each home, but really has a community empowerment component. Um, and so, and it actually, the idea came from, for me came from, uh, people may remember that energy efficiency programs that came during the ARA years, right? So this was when um, people were spending enormous amount on their utility bills and there was a way that we could make every home more energy efficient, going home by home, neighborhood by neighborhood, doing that weatherization. And I thought, why can't we do the same thing for our homes um, and be able to bring them the tools and resources? Because too often people think once wildfires at the door, there was nothing they could have done to prevent it. But the reality is homes can do, homeowners can do an enormous amount to help prevent that fire ever hitting their doorstep, ever hitting their neighborhood, and even the community when we look at field breaks. Um, and so Wildfire Ready Neighbors was born out of that idea of how do we empower communities and bring them the tools from, you know, trusted people like our local firefighters, our local government officials, our community nonprofits, and go home by home, helping them create that defensible space around their homes to prevent these fires even hitting the first place. Um, not only will it save their homes, but it'll save their lives and it'll also help our firefighters. Um, that education campaign has been wildly successful um, and I'm excited now for it to be um, branching out now to the west side. And I think that that will help people be more aware of um, what, how fires get started and how fires um, can be uh, enormously volatile, but also how they can be stopped through individual actions. Uh, I think the third piece um, where I think there is enormous opportunity now for education and, and um, is really in how we fight fires, right? Um, there is, you know, I think in Eastern Washington, there has enormous amount of understanding of how fires start and how fires are contained. I mean, they see, you know, we brought in the last years, we've had 35 air resources. We went from eight to 35 um, in our state um, available to us. And every time there's a fire in the Eastern Washington, they see those planes quickly and they see how they're dropping retardant, they're dropping water, whether they're rotors or whether they're seats, right? Fixed wing, right? And um, they have, so they have a sense of how that containment happens with the air and then on the ground. I think in the Western Washington, it's not been as visible because those fires have not been in these more populated areas until last year. Um, and I think this is the opportunity for us to be able to explain to the public, like when fire starts, we absolutely number one rule is initial attack. We get aircraft on those fires quickly. We contain them. We bring in the firefighters, the dozers and all the other equipment on the ground as fast as we can to contain the fire and put it out. And at the same time, there's landscapes that make it very, very difficult for us to send firefighters in by foot um, and very, very difficult for us to send aircraft in. And that is about education, about 
safety first, safety of our public and safety of our firefighters. We will never put our firefighters in harm's way where we believe the conditions, whether in the air, it's too steep in the topography or smoke has come in and makes it impossible for our pilots to see where if there's wind, it is at such a speed and velocity. There's no way we can bring our aircraft in without risk to their lives. Um, as well as if this terrain is so steep that there's risk of our firefighters going in um, just because of the steepness of the terrain and then trees falling down. We will have to wait till that fire burns a little bit, burns out a little bit. To, but while that's happening, we're still working. We're still building containment lines. So a lot of opportunity for education and awareness um, in some communities that are not very used to fire. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, really, I feel like the Bolt Creek was actually a great example of this all working. Um, of the strategies and tactics that you guys have available to you in the West side working pretty darn well, you know, no lost homes, um, right. very little lost infrastructure from what I understand. They were able to kind of prevent any significant damage to the road. I mean, as far as I can tell, it looked like it went pretty, pretty decently. It was really just a matter of telling people like day in and day out that like planes aren't going to help here. Helicopters aren't right. really going to help here. We can't really put water on the side of this, like, steep rock face and expect right. it to really do anything ultimately because we don't have folks on the ground. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think like the only missing piece there was really like how many folks were just asking for more aircraft and having to explain that wasn't really like how it works in this situation. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, this is a great opportunity for us as we get ready for fire season to be, you know, bringing in our social media team and our communications team about that opportunity for education. But it's almost like the what you know the one two threes of firefighting, right? I mean, we all generally know what it's like in a structural home, right? But I think there's an opportunity in the wildland area. I mean, the first thing we do is we're trying to create a perimeter, you know, that protects homes. Where are the structures, and how do we protect the structures at risk and build that containment line first and foremost? In addition to that, aircraft is always always something we go to first and foremost, um, at, except for the reality is sometimes the aircraft can't get in. I remember actually the Bolt Creek. I remember that day so vividly. Like I remember a lot of our big fires and I remember where we sent the aircraft up, right. To get on that fire quickly. And we actually had to turn them away because the smoke had gotten so intense. Right. And the steepness of those, that terrain, um, and I think it's just an opportunity for us to be able to educate people, the one, two, threes of fighting wildfires. Yeah. Another interesting uh, thing about that fire was really just like how it started and how it was just at the end of this long drought that we've had. And I think that those conditions are going to just continue, are going to be increasingly present. Um, so just, right. I guess people just expect that by early September, uh, like even if they haven't actively seen rain, they're going to be like, oh, like fire danger. Eh. Right. Um, I think so, there's, yeah. I was up on that fire just actually, I was up on the fire when there was snow. So, I mean, the fire was gone. So I was up on that area where it had burned, uh, the bolt Creek had burned, uh, earlier this year and there was snow on the ground. Right. And I, um, was walking that landscape and it is so clear when you look at that landscape, um, how fire was likely to happen there. Right. Uh, and it's because you and I both know we had these long periods of drought, long, hot temperatures. But on top of that, that landscape was extremely dense, extremely dense with um, a lot of smaller uh, trees that were literally like kindling 
they were dying. They were uh, weak. Um, and all it takes is a hot, dry weather and a lot of kindling on the ground and you're going to have a big fire. And that's exactly um, what happened. And I, I mean, this is the opportunity of being able to, and I didn't know it until I got in this role. When you look at our forests, Eastern and Western Washington, we all have a misunderstanding of what a healthy forest looks like, right? And we certainly have a misunderstanding of what a healthy forest looks like in the context of climate change and a rapidly changing climate. Um, and I think enormous amount of education needs to go into what, what really does a healthy forest look like and what are the things that need to happen to make it healthy? Because standing back and thinking that it will get there on its own is not the case. Um, it is going to take management. It is going to take engagement of our foresters um, on the ground, on those landscapes, making those forests more healthy and resilient if we're going to reduce these catastrophic fires. And frankly, if we're going to allow these forests to be able to save themselves, because once we do that forest health work and make those forests healthier, they can fight these fires on their own. They literally will stop it on their own. But we've got to do the work right now to start managing in the way that they can become healthy again and be able to be part of our firefighting team with us. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I, I, uh, I think people get trapped in the idea that more trees is better. More trees equals a healthier forest. <laughs> I feel like I maybe have gotten trapped in that idea even, yeah. Um, but yeah, that I, that's a perception I've seen often. Well, and can I give you an example and it's, and fire hasn't struck this area, but I, I, there's one of the great things about this job is I get to get out on the landscape and I get to see and feel and experience it firsthand, right? So I get a, not only the beautiful parts of our state, which there's so much, but I also get to see and understand the problem, right? Where, you know, for our forests, for our farmlands, for aquatic lands, right? Um, and how I get to see also how climate is changing that. And I also get to see how people's interaction and engagement with it is changing it. Um, and one of the most, you know, I have enormous amount of stories of being on the fire um, during the fire and post fire being in a community that are just, uh, transformative for me as a person, as a leader. But one of the, um, experiences I had was actually not during fire, um, about just healthy forests on the West side, especially. Um, and that was out on the coast. It was actually in the Olympic peninsula. And we have an experimental forest out there that department of natural resources has been really, um, really doing unbelievable experimental forestry and understanding sort of how a change in climate is working, how engagement, you know, and management, um, versus letting it be and not touch, um, is helping, um, or hurting a landscape. And, uh, I actually, so last year I was actually, I think in July or August, so it was hot, warm summer day. Um, and uh, my team had set, taken me through this um, area where they literally set up two experiments and one, and they're 10 feet apart, basically. So it's the same forest. It's the same landscape. It's the same climate. It's the same conditions, right? And we walked through one part, the, uh, one part of the forest, um, and that part of the forest was untouched. So they basically, we're not going to touch this. We're going to allow this to just see what happens without any human in interaction um, or intervention. And you walk that landscape and you had, you know, 75, 100 year old plus trees. Right. And first thing you notice it is was hot. 
It was hot. The climate just in that forest was hot, which you and I both know if you're in a healthy forest stand, it shouldn't be hot. It should be shading you from that sun, right? But it was hot. You also noticed that the trees were smaller in diameter. They were also leaning over. And then the ground, there was no, hardly any understory. You had a few ferns, you had very little salal or any of that, right? And the ground was dusty and dry, okay? Walk 10 feet over to the one that actually had, we had gone in and we had done um, basically sort of uh, thinning in that forest to help make sure that the trees were growing larger and healthier. They weren't competing with smaller trees. They were getting sunlight in, just the right amount of sunlight in, but you were also allowing them not to have to compete for soil nutrients and water. And you walk through and the first thing you notice was of that forest that had actually our, inter in our intervention and engagement in it the temperature was dramatically different. It was cooler. Um, the ground had moisture in it, even though it hadn't rained in a few days. Um, the trees were larger. They were standing tall. They were standing upright. They weren't leaning over. And the understory, you had everything from huckleberries and salal to ferns. And you also had smaller trees coming in, um, whereas the other one didn't have any smaller trees really coming in. Um, and that was one of the most one of uh, there's been a lot of transformative moments in my work here at the agency, but that was one of them about how we oftentimes think if we just stood back and let the forest be without any engagement or interaction with it, it'll be fine. Let nature be, let nature do what it does. The problem is we have, our climate has changed so dramatically and because of the cha rapidly changing climate. And then also because back to your earlier point, because we have stopped wildfire coming in to these landscapes and doing what fire, wildfire naturally could do uh, and did 50 plus years ago. These landscapes are gonna need our care and feeding for a while until they themselves can be as healthy and resilient on their own. Fantastic. I only have one more question. Um, yep. It's a quick, easy one. And mostly it's just, I'm, I'm kind of looking for your sort of utopic vision of like how you might, how you want to leave the agency um, when you, when you do leave. So whether that's like acres burned or resilience measures that have been implemented or just kind of what, what that looks like to you, what your, what your vision is. Uh, oh my gosh, this, oh, this is so global. And we're talking about wildfire and forest health versus all things. <laughs> wildfire specifically, yeah, forest health, yeah. resilience, mostly resilience. Um, yeah. Not so much in like the re the response realm, but in the, the resilience and the recovery realm. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say on the wildfire response for us to have sort of, you know, I think we've changed our agency's brand from do not respond, do not resuscitate to all hands, all lands. We are here um, as one team uh, to help prevent the state, uh, the evergreen state from burning and turning charcoal black. Um, I think on the context of resilience, uh, first, you know, my goal is that we tackled a monstrous goal of, you know, restoring 1.25 million acres of forest and not just focused on state lands, but federal, private, tribal lands that we are truly uh, way ahead of schedule in reaching our goal and proving that um, when government works uh, together at all levels and works for a common goal and works tirelessly for it, we can actually achieve that goal. 
and we can change the trajectory we're on of these catastrophic fires and that people are really seeing that that forest health work is making a difference, um, that it is reducing the size of these fires, the impact of these fires. Um, I think third is that too often um, people feel like uh, fire is out of their control and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, and that communities really have a sense of empowerment and ownership over their destiny and their future um, through the work of wildfire ready neighbors and bringing local fire districts, conservation districts, nonprofit organizations, local government, state government, and federal, that together we're sort of showing that um, these communities don't have to fear the future, but instead are in charge of their future and that we will be able to keep them safe because we're they're in it with us and they are as empowered and engaged and making a difference as our firefighters are every day. Um, I'm hopeful that the work, we've done enormous amount of work in Eastern Washington, Central and Eastern Washington and making a difference in the landscape resilience and the community resilience. We still have a long ways to go, but um, we have an enormous ways to go on the West side of our state and we're just at the beginning of the work. And I'm hoping that we will have um, laid out a path that really makes sure that the Western part of our state understands the wildfire risks, understands that they are not immune from it, understands they have a responsibility in it, um, and that we're able to get the tools and resources on the ground to help ensure that the forests in Central, Eastern, and Western Washington are healthier and that our communities are healthier. All right, folks, that is what we have for you for today's episode. Uh, huge thanks to Hillary for coming on the show. Huge thanks to her communications team for coordinating with me to get her on the show. That was uh, super helpful, and I appreciated having the opportunity to chat with her. Otherwise, I don't have much to share. Uh, if you guys want to support us, we do have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash lifewithfirepod. Um, otherwise, we love to get reviews. We love to get new followers on our uh, social media pages, Instagram, Twitter. Um, yeah. That's all I've got, and thanks for listening as always, and we'll catch you on the next episode.